All right, good morning to everyone. Uh, go ahead and open up with me to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. You got the uh, connected back there. All right, well, hopefully uh, if you were with us yesterday morning at the football tournament, you had a lot of fun. Um, and for some reason, I don't know how this happened, but I didn't even play in the football tournament, and I'm sore. So hopefully uh, y'all got, got home, got rested. We couldn't have planned that any better to have uh, fall back. You know, got an extra hour of sleep this morning, so y'all rested up after the, the grueling mud bowl that it was yesterday at the flag football tournament. So uh, let's go ahead. We'll jump into the scripture, Ephesians 4, looking at verses 1 through 6. I'm go ahead and read the text for us. And then I'll pray. Ephesians 4, verse 1. Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit, in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as also you are called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Let's pray. Father, we have just sung about these truths that we read here in Scripture, that we have one Lord, one Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, that there is one God who condescended, who came down to be the true and better Adam, to live a perfect life, the sure fulfillment of the law in him, to do what? To save hell-bound man. We thank you that there on the cross he died, there on the tree, he took the curse, the curse that was due for us, paid sin's penalty. He drank the Father's cup of wrath, and he was buried in the tomb. But Lord, he did not stay there. After three days, you rose, Lord. And because you rose, we gather here to worship, to proclaim that our Savior, he is alive, and that we want to worship him until he returns. We have this one unwavering hope. Lord, until then, we want to live lives worthy of that call. Help us as we look at this passage, especially as we focus on unity, how we can have unity within the body of Christ, unity within our relationships. And we thank you that we only have this because of the work that you have done. We praise you, we love you, in Christ's name, amen. If you're taking notes, the title of our lesson today is Our Practice in Christ, Walking in unity. Our practice in Christ, walking in unity. There are many reasons why I love sports, and maybe these are some of the reasons why you love sports. You know, I love sports because of the, the competition, being able to go head to head against an opponent. I love sports because of the exhilaration that I get to feel as I go out there and as I run around, as I'm playing, and as I'm battling, competing with my teammates. I love sports because of the character that it builds within you, 
uh, the lessons that you learned through those epic defeats, and some of y'all had many, many defeats yesterday, and some of y'all had many, many wins yesterday. And so for those reasons, I love sports, but there, there's one reason why I really love sports, and that is the, the hilarious press interviews that often happen with coaches and with different, uh, different players, different athletes. And maybe you're thinking of some of those hilarious interviews that you've heard of. Um, I'm sure Michael Ryan could probably fill you in on, on some of those, but you got you know, Jim Mora for the Indianapolis Colts, Colts when they were talking to him about playoffs and that, that, that epic line was like, playoffs? We're talking about playoffs? We can't even win a game. And you're over here talking about playoffs? I mean, it's, uh, some of you are like, whatever, I could care less about sports or anything like that, but it's just hilarious to me. Well, there's one that you may or may not be familiar with, but it comes from a professional basketball player, NBA superstar, Allen Iverson. Allen Iverson, maybe you heard of him, AI. Well, there was one time where he was being questioned about his practice habits, especially the lack thereof of his practice habits. They were giving him grief, they were calling him out, they're saying, man, you don't practice very hard, you don't practice at all. And so here's Iverson, he turns to that sports media journalist and he makes this legendary statement. He says, quote, we sitting in here, I'm supposed to be the franchise player and we in here talking about practice? I mean, listen, we're talking about practice, not a game, not a game, not, not a game. We're talking about practice. Not the game that I go out there and I die for and play every game like it's my last. Not the game, we're talking about practice. So clearly in, in Iverson's mind, right, there's a difference between the game that he loves and that he plays for and the practice that he has to do to go in to make himself better, to make his teammates better in order to go out and play that game that he talks about loving. When it came to practice, Iverson, he didn't have much concern for it. Well, it seems that in the Christian life that there's many who have that same Allen Iverson type mentality. You really have no concern for practicing the essentials of the Christian faith. You know, when it comes to God's call, when it comes to his salvation, when it comes to that realm of the Christian life, you're, you're all about that. You, you get excited about that. You're like, oh yeah, I'm in. I'm in Christ now. I can just kick my feet up and I can relax. I'm good. But when it comes to practicing that truth, when it comes to walking in a manner worthy of your calling, you're like, eh, I'm not about that life. I, I don't want to go and do and have to do all these things that scripture commands of us. I understand there can be no Allen Iverson type mentalities in God's team because those who are in Christ will practice the very truths to which they have been called. Now we remember that as we've been studying the book of Ephesians that the theme that we're going for, you can go for the eternal plan of God, you can go for in Christ our position in, or in him, our position in Christ. And so far we've looked at the first three chapters of the book of Ephesians, and we could summarize those as what I have up here, though a little off center there, but our position in Christ, our position in Christ. That's what the first 
three chapters were about. And we looked and we studied chapter one. All right, chapter one was the spiritual blessings of how we are in Christ now, that, that Paul is praising the triune God for this beauty of salvation, that the Father set his love on you. He chose you from the beginning, before the foundation of the world, to love you, to adopt you as his child. We saw that the Son redeemed you by his blood. We saw that the Spirit sealed you so that now you are his forevermore. We looked at that in chapter one. And then we saw in the first 10 verses of chapter two, our vertical reconciliation with God. This is how those who were previously in sin and who were dead in their trespasses and sins in which they once walked, this is how God has now reconciled them, made them alive, saved them by his grace through faith, and now how we are seated with Christ in the heavenly places. And then we saw in the rest of chapters two, when we have been looking at in the rest of chapter three, of how now you have been horizontally reconciled. If I've been reconciled vertically with God, what does that look now with other people in this world? What does that now look like with my other brothers and sisters? And Paul is saying that you are now reconciled together. And specifically, he's focusing right on that Jew-Gentile relationship. That, that Gentiles who were far off, who didn't have a hope, who didn't have God, who didn't have the Messiah, who didn't have the promises of Israel, how is it now that they can become one body with the Jews? Because you remember, right, Paul talks about a wall. It seems as if there was this gigantic wall, like the Great Wall of China that reached as high as the heavens that nobody could climb over to get in to this beloved place position that the Jews had because they were God's chosen people. How is it now the Gentiles are now over there? Now Gentiles can partake in those promises and enjoy the position of being in Christ. Well, he says it, he explains it in chapter two, that Christ broke down that great wall, that through his death, he broke down this wall of partition, he knocked it over, and now he is gathering both Jews and Gentiles into one body of Christ, that this was a mystery, that they didn't understand this, that now God is revealing it through his apostles and prophets. The cat's lit out of the bag, the secret is made known, we are all united, one, in Christ. And that's our position, right? That's our calling. That's what we've been looking at in the first three chapters, but can't just leave it there. We, we, we can't just say, okay, that's good. Let's just go on about our lives and we'll just go and do whatever. No, now Paul is going to bring up what we started with. That's our practice. How should we live according to this position? How should we live now that we have been called together in Christ. And that brings us to chapters four through chapter six. And the second half of the book of Ephesians, Paul implores the Ephesian church, and by extension, he's exhorting you, he's commanding you, he is pleading with you and with myself, with this local church, with all Christians everywhere, that we are to walk worthy of this calling. So if we want to summarize the second half of the book, it's our practice in Christ our practice in Christ. That's what his focus is on the rest of this letter, the rest of this epistle is, what should our practice then be? And so, you know, we've talked about this quite a bit. If at the first half of the book, the, the key word was that word in, we're in Christ, we're united with Christ. Well then, the, the verb walk, that word walk is the scarlet thread 
binding together the last three chapters, that our practice is consisting of our walk. Look there at chapter 4, verse 1. He says, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. Look at chapter 4, verse 17. So this I say to you and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walked. Look at chapter 5, verse 2. He says, and walk in love just as Christ also loved you. Look at chapter 5, verse 15. Therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise. And so throughout the second half of the book, he keeps exhorting them over and over and over again. Hey, practice the calling that you've received. Walk in a manner worthy, consistent of this calling that I started off with. And then as we kind of narrow it down even more, what does he begin with? When, when we think about our walk, we think about our practice in Christ, what do we start off with? Well, Paul starts off with unity. Starts talking about unity. Now, this is a question for you to answer. I, I invite some responses here. Uh, when we're talking about unity, why do you think Paul started off with unity? Why do you think he started there? Why didn't he start with like holiness or walking in love or wisdom or something like that? Why do you think he starts with unity? Man, I stumped y'all. Okay. Make sure Christians are all of one mind. Good. Why do you think it was necessary that they all be of one mind? Think of kind of what we just talked about. Who, were, who, who was in the Ephesian church? Yeah, you raised your hand, right? You went like this, and you're like, ah, oh, I'm good. I don't want to, and yeah, sorry, I called on. What you got? So why do you think that he starts with unity? Yeah. Yeah, they can't properly worship God. They're not unified. And we think of who's in the church, right? You have Jews and Gentiles. That's what we've been talking about for the last two chapters. And so it's hard for us maybe to understand exactly what that might look like. And so as I was thinking about this, have y'all seen the movie Remember the Titans? Have you seen the movie Remember the Titans? And, and you get kind of a picture of that, right? Where here you have, it, as they're desegregating the, the schools, as you have those who were in the, the, the white school, and you had those who were in the, the black school, and they, and they came together. They tried to make one school. They tried to make one team. And, and what did they have to do to, to start it off, right? They had to become unified. I mean, they had people fighting, and there was tension, and there was there was. Uh, 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 division within that team. And so what did the coach try to do? What, what Denzel try to do? He tried to get them unified. He tried to work, uh, get them working together as a team. He, he said, we can't do anything. We're not going to win any football games. We're not going to go out and do anything until we are one team. And so Paul, it's the same truth here. And, and until we come together and we're working together with one mind, with one heart, with one spirit, unified for Christ, we're not going to be able to do anything as a church. And so he starts off here with unity. It starts off with unity. Now, do you think unity is still a big deal? Shake your heads yes. If you think yes, shake no. If you think no, all right, everybody should be going like this. Yeah, yeah. Okay, these guys are asleep over here still. Yeah, unity is still a big deal, right? Uh, I was just looking uh, at news headliners. Unfortunately, you can find these all over. They're, they're pretty ugly, but I found one story. This happened just not too long ago. We're a fist fight. A fist fight broke out with the youth pastor during the middle of the preacher's sermon. So can you imagine Pastor Justin 
during the middle of Tom's sermon, swinging blows with this parent in the middle of the sermon. Like, that'd be, that, that's crazy, right? But that's the disunity, that's the division that we see in so many churches throughout our country and throughout our world. Unity was so important that Jesus, in his high priestly prayer, as he's praying for his disciples, he prays for unity four times. Four times he says, Father, make them one. Father, I pray that they would have the same unity that you and I have. Jesus cared about the unity of his church, and we should care for the unity that we have as a church. Because when our unity, when, when, the, when the world sees that we are a unified body of believers, we are a public declaration of the glory of our God. So that brings us then to, to unity. That brings us to the, the theme, the summary of what our lesson is about today. We could summarize it like this. Our practice in Christ is seen when we walk in unity. Our practice and Christ is seen when we walk in unity. That's what we're focusing on today, because that's what Paul focused on in these first six verses. And then our outline, the question is then, well, what does that unity look like? What does it consist of? Is this, we're gonna discover in Ephesians 4, one through six, we discover three essential elements for the practice of walking in unity. There's three essential elements in these verses they're gonna teach us, they're gonna help us walk in unity, not only in the church, so we're, what Paul's focusing on here is in the church, but by broader application, this helps us walk in unity with all of our relationships, with our parents, with our siblings, with our friends, Lord willing, one day with a spouse and for our leaders with their spouses, with their, their kids. So that brings us then to the first essential element, the call to unity, the call to unity. We must understand that walking in unity is part of our calling. Look at verse one. Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. So we can see here that Paul is transitioning. He uses the word therefore, transitioning as he always, not always, but most of the time as he does in his letters, excuse me, as he's shifting now from our calling, verse, uh, chapters one through three, to our conduct in verses four through six, our, our position in chapters one through three, to our practice in chapters four through six. And that's, that's important, right? It's important that Paul first lay down the gospel foundation before he started giving us the gospel imperatives, that, that a changed heart must precede a changed life. Now, you, you can try to dress up a pig you can try to put makeup on a pig, but at the end of the day, what is it? It's not that hard. It's a pig, right? It's a dirty, stinky, nasty pig. It's gonna go roll in the mud and do all that kind of stuff. Now, if you love pigs, uh, good for you. Sorry if I offended you, but it's still a pig, right? The same thing, you can, kinda, you can try to dress yourself up with makeup and put on these nice clothes, put on this Christian exterior and try to impress everybody and make everybody think a certain thing about you. But at the end of the day, you still have a dirty, stinky, rotten heart if it has not been changed by the gospel. And so Christ begins with the gospel because we need the gospel to then transform us as we live out and as we practice our faith 
in Christ. Jesus called them whitewashed tombs, the Pharisees, because they were clean on the outside. They did chapters four through six, but they didn't do chapters one through three. They didn't have a changed life, a changed relationship with the, with the Lord. So, so that was the foundation Paul's laying. He says, therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord. What is he going to call them to? Well, the rest of verse one, I implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. That is really the, the theme statement. That's, that basically carries the rest of the letter. This is what he wants to focus on. He wants them to live a life worthy of the gospel, worthy of the call that they have received. That word there, to walk. It's just a metaphorical description of what the Christian faith, the Christian life looks like. It means your conduct, your behavior, your practice of the truth. It's not, the Christian life is just not like a, a poof, oh man, I made it, I'm good, I'm already, like Jesus saved me and boom, I'm already at the finish line and everything's good. No, it's, it's a walk, it's a journey, it's a process. You're starting off, the Lord has saved you and now you are starting to live your Christian life until the Lord takes you home. John MacArthur defines it like this. He says, the Christian life, that is the Christian walk, is simply the process of becoming what you are. That, that the Lord at salvation has declared you righteous and now you are to live out growing in Christian sanctification, just becoming that faithful follower of Christ that God has declared you already to be. This idea of walk, it comes from the Old Testament. It was a popular phrase that they used back then. And you can see it over and over again in the lives of Israel's kings, of Judah's kings. As you think of um, of the Old Testament, they walked, they followed after, they practiced in the sins of their, of their fathers. Or as in Second Chronicles 34, 2, that he did right in the sight of the Lord. He walked in the ways of his father David, did not turn to the right or to the left. It was this picture in the Old Testament of, of following after, of practicing those who came before them. Well, Paul uses the same term earlier in Ephesians 2, 2. Look real quick at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2, where he says that you formerly did what? You formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. That, that, was, that was you before Christ. As we've been learning in 1 John, you practiced unrighteousness. You practiced the deeds of the devil. You were of your father, the devil, so you did what the devil led you to do. Paul's saying the same thing here in Ephesians chapter 2, 2, that formerly before Christ, you walked this way. Hey, but now you're in Christ. So what does that mean? You got to walk this way. And so he says, walk, live out, practice. And how are you to do that? What's the manner? What should this look like before God? Well, he uses the word there back in chapter 4, verse 1, that you are to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. That word worthy there, it's a very descriptive word. And there's two pictures that kind of help us capture the sense of what this word looks like. On the one hand, first, that the, the word means equal weight. Equal weight, it comes from a, a balance of scales. That on the one hand, you had, on this one hand of the balance of scales, you, you had something that was heavy that would bring the scales down. And so what you would have to do is you would have to put something on the other side of the scales that would then equal them out. I know some of y'all, y'all do the uh, science experiments in class, and those are always some of my favorite science experiments, where you have something there in science class, and you put a big heavy object on, 
on this side of the scales, and the teacher would be like, oh, how many, make a hypothesis of like how many uh, paper clips it takes to put on this side in order to balance it out, something like that. And so you would try to figure all that out in order to equal the weight. Well, what Paul is saying here then is that the calling with which you have been called is on this side, and it is grand. It is great. It is weighty. It is heavy. It is bringing the scales down because it is so massive. It is so amazing. So what he says is, hey, your life, your life needs to match it. Your life needs to be one that you are living in light of that reality, that you should be living for Christ, that your life should be of great importance for Christ, that you should be following after Christ, that it should be in such a way lived out that, that you are now equally living for the God who has saved you. That if Christ has died for you, Paul is saying, then you will live for him. It is that equalizing type of picture here. That, and, you, and you know, you see this, right? You see people that say they're Christians and they say they're following Christ, but their lives, it's like, like here is the, the weight of the gospel, the beauty, the glory of the gospel in their lives. They're just living in sin. And you look at that and you're like, these people, they're just showing everyone that it really doesn't matter, that the, the, the greatness and the glory of the gospel doesn't matter. They have no weight, no, there's nothing to their life that shows that they have any desire or love or importance, that Christ is not anything to them. And Paul's saying, equal it out, equal it out. Well, second, not only is this this word picture of equal weight, there's also this idea of clashing, uh, of clashing, this picture of clashing that our walk can't clash, it can't collide with what our calling is, what our profession is. And, and so the idea we might have here is, uh, um, is that of fashion, of that, of that of clothes, right? Some of y'all in here, man, y'all got some good style, man. Some of y'all guys, whoo, y'all looking like sharp. Some of you ladies are looking so nice. Y'all got good fashion. Well, there's some of y'all in the room that, I'm looking at y'all, I'm like, man, what's going on? What, did you wake up and get dressed in the dark this morning, you know? Because you, your clothes are all colliding. They're clashing with each other. The colors aren't matching. One time I was, uh, I had the privilege of coaching and, uh, in college at Texas State University. We had this big recruiting weekend, and I was supposed to sh dress sharp. So, you know, like, uh, to impress the recruits or something, which I don't think that that would have happened because they could care less who I was. But, but I walked in and I had this nice big brown belt on. It looked super spiffy. I had these nice sharp black shoes on there. Ooh, man, they were looking good. And our coach comes up to me. He says, Wes, come over here. I'm like, okay, what's going on? It's like, Wes, you, your, your brown belt are not matching with your shoes right now. Like, this is not working. This is, this is, you need to like figure this thing out, man, because you have no, it's like a fashion disaster going on right here. And so kind of in the, in, in the same way, the same mindset here then, is that here we are, here's our calling in Christ and here, here's our life in Christ. And, and somehow the two are not connecting. You're clashing. You're saying, hey, I'm living for Christ, but the way you're living your life is not faithfully following, matching the, the Christ that you say that you love. Paul applies this truth in Titus Chapter 1, verse 16, one of my just most convicting verses. It says, they profess. Listen to this, Titus 1, 16. They, they profess to know God, but by their deeds, they deny him. They profess to know Christ, but by their deeds, they deny him. It's clashing. 
They profess to know Christ on this hand, but by their actions, by their words, by the things they're doing, they're denying him. They're not walking in a manner worthy of the gospel. And so I, before we go on, I, gotta, I have to implore you now to take some time and right now, as we're, as we're listening to the sermon, as we go out from here, to examine your own heart, to examine your own life, and to ask yourself, Man, am, I, am I professing to know God? Am I professing to be in Christ? Yeah, 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 I, I'm a Christian. I, I'm called in Christ. I'm united with him by faith. Well, if so, then, is your life being lived out in a manner worthy of his calling? On one side, is this calling, this gospel down here, but you're living like your life up here as if, ah, oh, I could care less. Are you clashing with this profession that you're making? That you're coming here on the Sunday morning and you know, you're putting on that big happy face, but then you're going home with your parents and you're being disrespectful, you're talking back to them. You're not coming home when they're telling you to, to be home by. You're going out with your friends doing things that would dishonor God, would dishonor your family. You're going with your, your siblings. You're not treating them kindly, graciously, lovingly. You're in school. You're, you're, you're getting, you're getting the, your friend's paper. You're cheating off of them. Like, in all these ways, is your life not matching up to the profession that you're making for Christ? Is it clashing? Is it unequal in weight? And if that is, if that is you, well, maybe, maybe you are in Christ and you need to repent. You need to to turn away from those sins and, and refix your eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ that, that you love and that you need to live for. And, but maybe you're not in Christ. Maybe you're, you're not a follower of him. The same is true of you. The same is true. You, you need to repent and turn from the wickedness of your ways. And you need to see for the first time ever to have your eyes, the blindfold lifted off. And you need to see the glory of Christ the beauty of Christ, the magnificence of his calling, and you need to gaze upon him and to see that he has loved you. And as you see that, and as you understand that the Savior has died for rich, wretched, sinful people like you and I, that you need to turn from your sin, turn from that way, and live a life that's worthy of his calling. So then we see here then a that our practice begins with walking in a manner worthy of our call. And it, more narrowly focused, it begins with unity. Commentator Harold Honer says it like this, quote, the calling here, that we're talking about in verse one, the calling refers not only to believers' salvation, we've talked about that quite a bit the last three chapters, but now it also refers to their union in one body. Therefore, a Christian's conduct concerns both his personal life and his responsibility to other believers in the church. We see that right there in verse three, where it says to preserve the unity of the spirit. We see that in verses four through six. You see it in the word one, over and over and over again. Paul is saying one, 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 one. We see it in verse 13. What's the purpose of spiritual gifts, of why each of us have different gifts? Well, it's for the equipping of the saints of the body. Why? In verse 13, so we all attain to the unity of the faith. That's his focus here in the first 16 verses, is unity. That the, the very beginning of our calling starts with unity. You are united with his body, and this is not an option, Christian. This is not an option for you. This is a command. 
It's not like eating a sandwich. You can have the yummy middle part. You can have the riches of his calling without eating the, the crust, without doing the hard work, the hard practice of unity. So our call is to walk in a manner worthy, especially to walk in a manner worthy of the unity that we have received in Christ. We need to realize it and understand the importance of it. But that brings up the vital question, how do we do that? Okay, I, I understand. I've been called to unity. How do we do that? Well, that brings us to the second essential element. The second essential element is the cultivation of unity. The cultivation of unity. That's verses 2 through 3. How do we cultivate unity? Well, he says there, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. When it comes to, to gardening, there's some of us in here, you, you've got a green thumb, and there's some of us in here that, man, you got uh, a black thumb, right? Some of us can have this beautiful, amazing uh, garden bed, like my mother-in-law. My mother-in-law, uh, she's a Texas master gardener. I love going to her house. She has the most beautiful flower and garden beds. But then there's some of us, man, y'all can't even keep succulents alive, right? We, we, can't, we can't even do that. We, we kill things, right? And so why does my, my mother-in-law, why is she able to, to do so well in her gardening and her flowering? Well, it's because she knows that, you know, take for instance her dianthus, she knows how much sunlight it needs. She knows the exact amount of soil nutrients it needs. She knows how much water it needs. She knows everything about this plant because she studied it, she's researched it, and she cares for it. Well, in the same way, we can picture the unity of the church as a, as a tender flower, all right? As a tender flower. In order to cultivate the unity of the church, we have to give it the nutrients to help it thrive, to help it be preserved. And as we look at these two verses, there's six vital nutrients that we need to cultivate unity. And as we get going, right, these, these are not just automatics. Uh, we don't just wake up and be humble one day. We don't just wake up and be gentle with each other. We have to put these on. These are an effort. These are conscious attitudes and practices that we have to be implementing in our lives and in the church. So what's the first vital nutrient that we need for unity? It's humility. Humility. Just like there's nothing more deadly to a beautiful flower than a sinister insect or something of that nature, wanting to devour its blooms. There's nothing more lethal to the unity of the church than pride. Now, where there's pride, there's only division. So Paul starts at the very heart of it all. We have to have humility if we're going to cultivate unity. And we hear that word humility a lot, and maybe it doesn't kind of just jump off the page at us like it should, but in the ancient Roman and Greek society, humility was a dirty word. It was a derogatory word. People in the ancient times, they looked upon humility and those who talked about humility with scorn. They thought, and they taught that, that humility was something to be thrown out into the virtue junk pile. Like, humility, forget that. Well, we can kind of think and see that same mentality in our world today as people lord it over them. That, oh no, humility, forget that. Let me just exalt myself. Let me look and, and boast of myself. Make, my, make myself look better and think of myself more highly than others. And so then, Scripture is so countercultural. I mean, Paul's teaching here flies in the face of how our world operates. 
but not just his teaching. This is how Paul lived. He says in Acts chapter 20, verse 19, while he was there with the church in Ephesus, he says this, that he served the Lord with all humility. This was Paul's example. This was his teaching. And we know that that was our Lord's example. We know that that was his teaching. And so just kind of a vivid, uh, a vivid illustration of what pride does to a church. If, if we had time, we don't have time there, we could go to, to 3 John. And 3 John, we see this guy named Diotrephes, right? This guy Diotrephes, what does it, it say about him? He loved to be first among them. Oh, he loved to be the, the, the show of, of the church. He wanted everybody to make much of him and to look at him and to think highly of him. And, and if you disagreed with him, it was a bad thing. In fact, in 3 John, it says that he was throwing people out of the church if they disagreed with him. This was a man who was filled with pride. And so when, when we see pride happening in our church and we see pride happening here in this group, it only leads to division. It only leads to faction. And so the, the question I ask you then is, is, where is pride winning out in your heart? Where are you thinking more highly of yourself than the needs of those around you? And are you trying to see to be first like diatrophies in your life and in your relationships? Is it all about your way, it's your way or the highway, right? Is it about your wants, your needs? Is that how you're re, uh, relating to your parents, to your, your friends here, to your small group leaders, to the elders of a church, to whoever it might be, your coaches, your teammates, your teachers? Is pride ruling out in your heart? If so, then understand there's gonna be nothing but broken relationships between you and the others, between you and those sitting here. And so the first nutrient that we need is that we must put on all humility. We must put on all humility. Second, we need gentleness. We need gentleness. Humility speaks of the inner man. Right? It speaks of a mindset a mindset that we have that, that we are poor in spirit before God, that we have nothing that we can offer to God, that we're completely broken and we are in complete need of the Lord Jesus Christ. Not only that, it's a mindset of Philippians 2 that we're gonna seek others' interests before our own. We're gonna seek their needs before our needs. So if that's humility, then gentleness, it speaks of humility in action. How does humility actually flesh itself out in the body of Christ. Well, we see that gentleness, as one commentator referred to it, it says it refers to that which is mild-spirited, self-controlled. One commentator explained it like this, gentleness implies the conscious exercise of self-control as opposed to the power for the purpose of retaliation. In other words, it's just the polar opposite of being harsh, of being rude, of being domineering, of, of seeking revenge. When I'm not thinking about myself, when I'm not thinking about my needs, then I'm going to act in gentleness. When somebody offends me, they don't say something nicely that I think they should say nicely. They don't sit by me here in youth care. They go and sit with that person over there. I'm like, oh, they're sitting over there. What's going on? I'm not going to act with a harsh, bitter attitude towards them. I'm going to have self-control. I'm going to show gentleness in that situation. And maybe they say something might be unkind. I'm not going to respond to them 
with a heated insult. Proverbs 15.1 says that a gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. And when we're harsh, when we're angry with each other, it does nothing but fracture relationships. But when we're gentle with each other, lovingly pointing out sin, lovingly calling out other believers, lovingly maybe overlooking offenses as Proverbs 19.11, when we're doing those things, we are going to cultivate unity. Well, third, we need patience. We need patience. This refers to patiently enduring someone or something that is extremely difficult or foolish. You know, patience is often used of God. It's his long suffering that he should bring the, the rod of wrath down upon us and smoke us as soon as we sin against them, but he doesn't. He's patient towards us, not wishing for anyone to perish, but for all to reach repentance. That should be the same of us. We need to be patient towards one another. Proverbs 16.32 says it this way, He who is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit than he who captures a city. That patience comes from a humble, gentle heart. That instead of having a quick temper, a short fuse, you, know, you come in here, it's been a bad day at school, bad day at home, and all of a sudden somebody comes up to you and, I don't know, does something to you, all of a sudden you just start mouthing off at them, you just get upset, start simmering within you. You're like a volcano that's about to erupt, and then it keeps getting on and on and on, and next thing you know, you explode. You go home, you explode at your parents. You go home, you explode at your friends. That's what anger does, and it breaks relationships. It breaks unity. And so Paul's saying here, be patient. Be long-suffering towards other brothers and sisters in Christ. Be patient towards them, and that will cultivate unity. Fourth, we need loving tolerance. Loving tolerance. And obviously this ties in with patience, right? Uh, and when we talk about tolerance, it doesn't mean that we're just turning a blind eye. It doesn't mean tolerance like the world means tolerance. We don't allow a person to believe or sin however they want. And we're like, we're okay with that. Yeah, you can go believe that about God. Oh, you can do that in sin. We, we, no, that's not tolerance. That's not Christian biblical tolerance. We don't tolerate sin. Rather, it means to bear, to put up with, to tolerate others who may have a difference of opinions on, with us on things that are not essential doctrine. It means to put up with those quirks, those annoying habits, just those weird things that other people do, right? Don't start pointing fingers here, but can y'all think of anybody right here in this room is like, man, that, that person's kind of, that does some kind of weird, right? Or, man, why do they talk like that? Or why do they, why do they do that? Why do they dress like that? Why do they get to go play that game over there, right? And so as a body of Christ, we're in Christ. We have to, to tolerate those differences, those quirks, those quote-unquote weirdness of the difference in the body of Christ. Because unity doesn't mean uniformity. We don't look the same, talk the same, uh, have to think about the, the same, a perfect like communist or something, right? It's differences coming together, making this beautiful blend, this beautiful mosaic. And so here it is, Paul saying we have to tolerate, but not just tolerate. It's not a grind it out, grin, bear it out kind of tolerance. It's a loving tolerance. A loving, we show love for one another. We show love. We tolerate the differences of others. And that will help us cultivate unity. We go on. The fifth is diligent preservation. 
diligent preservation. We have to diligently preserve this unity. The word for diligent is hard work. It was the work that you would do to set out on a journey, to set out the effort you would have to expend on a long journey in the ancient world. And preserving means to keep, to hold on to, to cultivate, to maintain something that you already have, right? We don't create unity within the church. The Spirit of God has created unity when he has united us with Christ in his body, 1 Corinthians 12, 13. We have been united with Christ, whether Jews or Greeks, into one body. And so it's the Holy Spirit then who has planted this unity flower, if you would, in the, in the bed of the church, and now it's our job to preserve it, to cultivate it, to keep it, to maintain it. Right, just the way we have wildlife preserves here in the United States, and so they're trying to keep out these poachers, and they're trying to keep out these criminals who would try to kill the wildlife. We have to be on guard against sin. We have to be on guard against false doctrine. We have to be preserving unity, both giving it the right nutrients and keeping it from those things that would kill. And six, we need peace. We need peace. Right? The peace, we just read about Colossians 1, the peace that we have, it comes through Christ. We have peace through his blood. Now we have to walk in peace. We have to be at, at peace with one another in our relationships. And so as we have these six nutrients, uh, as we're seeking, making every effort, diligently pursuing these, we're going to cultivate unity within the church. That brings us now to the third essential element, which is the foundation of unity. How is it? Why is it that we are unified? Well, Paul explains in verses four through six, here's the basis. Here's the, the essentials or as I put up, Paul provides seven pillars here which serve as the foundation of our unity. And I'm about to fly through these, so just get ready. Hold on to your, your seatbelt. We won't have time to look at them. But the first pillar is one body. We've talked about that. Paul's been emphasizing that for the last two chapters. There's one body, one body of believers. And as we're going to see, all of us have different gifts. All of us have different roles. All of us have different functions within that body but we're all coming together for one purpose, one cause, that is that one body of Christ. The second pillar is that we have one spirit. There's only one spirit, the Holy Spirit, who has called us into that body, who has regenerated, who has opened our eyes. The third pillar is that we have one hope, one hope that Jesus is going to return from, from heaven. He is going to call his to himself, and we are going to reign with him forever and ever. As a side, it's funny that one of the things that so often divides us, right, is eschatology. But Paul here says that we have one hope. Yeah, we may disagree about when the tribulation is going to happen, but ultimately we have unity because we have all one hope in Jesus Christ. The fourth pillar we have is one Lord. One Lord. We can't serve two masters. We don't have two allegiances. We have one Lord, one Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, and there is no other. We can't as many Mormons or Jehovah's Witnesses and, and people that are trying to make unity with him, we, we can't do that. We only have one Savior, not their, their Jesus that they talk about, not this Jesus that they talk about. There's one Jesus that the scripture has revealed to us, and that is the essential of our unity. That's the fourth pillar. The fifth pillar that we have is one faith, one faith, and that's not a subjective faith in believing in Jesus. 
This is objective. This is the good deposit. This is the sound doctrine. This is your word right here, the Bible that has been revealed to us. We have one faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and we need to stray from those who try to add or subtract from it. Six, we have one baptism. One baptism. There's a lot of disagreement, and there's a lot of arguing on what this refers to. But in a nutshell, it just refers to that common confession that we all have. We just heard a whole string of baptisms, and, and in one sense, they're all different. They're all unique. And in one sense, they're all the same. Every single one of those people that you heard were saved by one God, through one Savior, by, by one act of grace, through one response of repentance and faith. We have one baptism. And lastly, we have one God and Father who is over all. Who is over all, who is working in all things, and who is through all. And we're going to see that next time as he is the one who is going to be dispensing spiritual gifts to each one of us. So those are the seven pillars of the foundation of our unity. And that's just introducing. I wish I had more time. Sorry, I I cut that off a little bit, but that's what our practice in Christ should look like. Walking in unity. You've been called to it. You need to cultivate it, and you need to hold fast to the foundation of it. There are no Allen Iversons on God's team. We all have to practice unity. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the great work of salvation that you have wrought in each and every one who calls upon the Lord Jesus Christ in repentance and faith. But Lord, not only that, as we looked at today, we have been united with one body in Christ. Or we are called to unity. We're to cultivate unity. Help us to stand firm on that foundation. And Lord, I pray if there are any here who see that their lives are not being lived out in a manner worthy of their calling, that they would repent that they would turn back to you today and that you would do your mighty work to bring glory to yourself and salvation. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.